Hosanna to the Son of David. Greetings and welcome to another installment of Sermon here at White's Run Baptist Church. We're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 21 today, and we're going to be looking at this saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, among many other things there. We're going to find many surprising things found in the account of what is called the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, which took place the Sunday before his crucifixion at Jerusalem. And we're going to find uh, many profound things about this, is what we're doing is we are preaching through some of the key texts that take place during his last week uh, prior to his crucifixion to prepare our hearts and our minds to celebrate Easter with him, to celebrate the crucifixion and the resurrection. And yes, the crucifixion is celebrated in addition to the resurrection because it was there that our Lord paid the price for sins for all those who believe. And so uh, turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to see some very fascinating things. First, I want to show you a picture. And uh, this picture comes to us by way of a man named Bernard Plockhorst. And this is the triumphal entry by Bernard Plockhorst. And while I doubt there were chubby cherubs marching ahead of Jesus, uh, it gives a depiction of the excitement, tries to capture the moment of, of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And while this... Uh, is not historically accurate. I believe it might just capture the sense uh, in which we celebrate, the sense in which we lay down before him as it were our lives rather than our leaves and our cloaks. And so we have a great opportunity to learn in the scriptures uh, what was Jesus doing. So let's go to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at the first 11 verses and then we'll have great opportunity to discuss together. So here's what that looks like. Let's go full screen with it to help us out. It says, Now they, when they drew near to Jerusalem, that is, Jesus and the disciples, and came to Bethphage, uh, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, let's begin then properly with a word of prayer. Father God, it is our wish that indeed you would be known through the exposition of this text. Reveal to us the truth about Jesus and what his claims were, what his purposes were in that day. And Lord, I pray that you will enlighten us all to many great things. We first of all thank you and praise you for this event, for we know its significance that indeed Jesus has come into the world to reign to, to bring the kingdom to many souls. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this uh, 
account in Matthew chapter 11 is profound. This is actually accounted in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each have a, a different perspective, a different emphasis on it. There are no contradictions. You can line them all up and figure them all out and and put them together if you would like, but I would recommend reading them all, for we will refer to a couple of those as we go through. The first thing I want to talk about is what indeed was Jesus doing? Well, the first thing that's very obvious here is that Jesus was proclaiming kingship. He was claiming to be a king. See, the Romans had a tradition, and it was called a triumph. And a triumph was when a victorious emperor or general would return to Rome, they would have this great parade if they had had a great victory over enemies, and they would return home, and in this great parade, they would wear their very best armor and everything and present their best soldiers and present the spoils of war, the treasures they had taken or the prisoners that they had, and parade them through the streets of Rome to the shouting of all those with them. And this was uh, even more than a political rally. This was kind of an opportunity of worship where there would actually be offerings made on behalf of the general or even to him if he were the emperor. And so this was an important time of worship and of sacrifice to them. And this became tradition, not just among the Greeks and the Romans, but among other cultures as well. And so Jesus is actually borrowing from the culture, so to speak. But what we're going to see is we're going to see that God wrote about this entry of Jesus a couple hundred years before the Romans were involved here in Judea. And so this is something that uh, God has taken something in the world and used it to point us to Jesus Christ, a, a profound and beautiful thing that God often does. Well, the uh, spreading of the garments is very clear that people got this, that they understood, hey, this is what he's doing. If we look at verse 8 here, uh, they took their garments, they spread them on the ground, then spread their, their cloaks on the road and the branches. And so this is uh, amazing. It's as if saying uh, before this person, the feet of even his beast uh, are too good to tread upon the soil and that we should make a barrier there. And if you recall uh, ancient tales of chivalry, of a man uh, laying his cloak across, across the mud so that the princess or the queen or, or even just a fair lady could march across without soiling her shoes. And this was the idea here, is that laying these things down before this rider, before this triumphant one who comes in, uh, is a sign of obedience, a sign of submission, a sign of saying, you are worthy to have me do this for you. And indeed, that was part of what it was to follow a king. To follow a king was to be uh, faithful to that king, was to respect that king, was to obey that king, and, and to defend that king's honor even unto death if necessary. And it's something that's entirely lost in our world today because we don't have kings, we have elected officials. And very few of us feel this way about most elected officials just because of the nature of politics and who's attracted to that kind of position. And so some of this idea is lost on us. But if we can imagine, if you would, uh, a king, who is so great that he would be deserving of your allegiance, deserving of dirtying your coat by his beast trampling across it, well then certainly you've got the picture. Jesus was purposefully claiming kingship here. 
But at the same time, Jesus was showing a great deal of humility. And this is seen basically in this. It, he breaks from tradition here. We saw that Jesus was riding upon a donkey. Now, that's a beast of burden. That is not something you ride into war. A horse was what you rode into war. A horse was what a victorious general or emperor rode back in on. You would find the greatest and mightiest and most beautiful horse that the army had, which was usually his anyway. And that's what he would ride in on. And here Jesus chooses this donkey, a beast of burden, not a beast of war. And very interesting, that's what's in the scripture that we'll see just in a moment. So he's showing humility and he is proclaiming peace because he is a conquering king that does not come with sword and with bow and with war horse. He comes lowly and riding upon a donkey. And so we have a proclamation of peace is what Jesus is bringing here. And this ties right into the scripture that's being fulfilled. First of all, if we go back to what we saw here in, in Matthew, in chapter 2, verse 5, the disciples later saw this as a fulfillment of this Zechariah passage. Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Let's take a look there at what it says in Zechariah. And you can see it's the first verse here at verse 9 is quoted. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's not quoted word for word, but every essential element is there from Zechariah 9. 9. But I want you to pay particular attention to what it says the verse directly after, because we know that when the scriptures quote us a verse of scripture, they're bringing us not back just to those mere words, but to the passage and the meaning of the passage. The weight of the passage is often what is very much seen and very important here. The very next verse says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. So saying Ephraim and Jerusalem together is referring to the whole kingdom of Israel. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so it was common for them to refer to their land by its borders from the river to the great sea. Um, and they would define the borders of the land to say throughout our whole land. But no, this says from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, he's ruling over the entire earth and he's ruling over them in peace because there's no need for a chariot in their land. There's no need for a horse in their land. There's no need for a battle bow. In other words, this one, this coming one, which they knew as Messiah, he was bringing total peace. And he's bringing that peace by way of ruling over all the nations of the earth. That's how he brings peace. He rules over them all. If they have a common leader, they will have peace. And this is part of what was uh, called the, the Pax Romana, was the, the peace of Rome. Rome brought peace by conquering everyone. And indeed, the Messiah brings peace by conquering everyone. And this is important, and this is a huge aspect and a huge point to understand what Jesus is saying by coming in and fulfilling this scripture, by coming in, riding to Jerusalem on a donkey. 
This is what he is declaring is that he has come to bring peace. He says so in Luke's account of these of this occurrence. When he comes up to the city, he looks at the city of Jerusalem, which you can see from the Mount of Olives. He's coming over the hill uh, from uh, Bethany and Bethphage and riding this donkey, coming into that area where you begin to see the city of Jerusalem. You'll find, and Google it, Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, and you'll find many, many pictures of views of Jerusalem where you can see the whole city sprawled out before you. Most importantly, the Temple Mount is in plain view here. You're viewing it from that east side. And so he comes over that, and when he sees the city from that vantage point, he says, would that you, that means I wish that you, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. See, the leaders were in the process of rejecting Jesus. Their rejection was imminent, and part of what Jesus was doing here was to make their rejection of him certain. He is forcing their hand by this great display, this bold display of his declaring of his kingship. And he says, if only you'd known what made for peace, but you didn't. So now they're hidden from your eyes. He came to proclaim peace, but this peace was not accepted by the leadership of the Jews. In fact, they declared war on Jesus. As they had been doing all along, it was now being quite solidified. So he came proclaiming peace. That peace was not accepted by all. But what is the nature of the peace that he's proclaiming? If we peruse the Old Testament for what was in their day as Jesus came, what were some of the key verses that really define this? We looked at some right there in uh, Zechariah chapter 9, but look at this in Micah 4, a description of what the world would be like under the reign of Messiah. And it's about the mountain of the Lord. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come. And say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see, this is going to be a time of great peace. Why? Because the nations are coming to the God of Israel to learn from him and learn from his ways. It says, he shall judge between many peoples, that is nations, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Let that sink in. This is an image, and you can update it to modern day if you wish, of a great repurposing of the toil of mankind. How much of our toil and our treasure do we spend upon weapons, upon things of offense, upon things of defense? And in every kind of way, what if there were a great industry formed house to house, person to person, village to village, nation to nation, of repurposing all those things into something useful, into something helpful, into something productive. This is the image we're being given here. And look at this image of peace. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Everyone hearing my sermon today 
has not lived in a time where we did not hear of war somewhere. And maybe we weren't involved in it or we weren't as affected by it, but nevertheless, it is always there, present in the world. Wars between the nations, they will not learn it anymore at this time. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. This is speaking of prosperity. House to house, everyone involved. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. In other words, God has said this is going to be, and it is going to be. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. A beautiful glimpse of what the world would be like under the rule of Messiah. And indeed, this is a coming time, a time that indeed will eventually happen. So Jesus came proclaiming peace, and this should point us toward these passages and understand this is why he came. He is in the process of working this right now. And you might say, well, it doesn't look like it's doing much good. The world's still in chaos. Yeah, but many, many millions have come to Christ, and many, many more will come to Christ. And eventually he will return and enforce this peace upon the earth, and it will be a peace of his people because those who are not of a mind to follow this king, will be eliminated. And this is profound and true. And this is Jesus boldly saying it to be so. So Jesus was also fulfilling prophecy. And I want us to think about this for a minute, because what Jesus was doing very clearly was fulfilling this on purpose. Take a look at the first couple verses here as we uh, read them. And you may have noticed, Jesus is the one who sets this up. Now, Jesus fulfilled many prophecies, but generally it was he would do something and then they realized, oh, he's this has fulfilled a prophecy, that he is a healer, that he gives sight to the blind, that the lame can walk. All these things were prophecy that he was doing. He was born in Bethlehem. He uh, came from Egypt, so to speak. He ministered in Galilee. He did certain things in Jerusalem. Many of these things being the fulfillment of prophecies. But this is the only time in all the Gospels that it's accounted that Jesus actually set this up ahead of time to do this one on purpose. And I think it's because of the significance of this particular day that the Holy Spirit inspired that we would have the account of him setting this up. He tells them, go into the village, you'll find a donkey with a colt. If anyone says unto you, say, the Lord needs them. In other words, he had already spoken with the owner and, and the owner had already known he was coming and these things were arranged. And he did this on purpose to fulfill this prophecy of Zechariah 9, essentially saying, yeah, this is me, I'm that king, and I'm riding into Jerusalem upon a donkey. Now, they tried to take him by force once. In John chapter 6, he had opportunity before to declare himself as king, to be made king by the people. In John chapter 6, we have an accounting of him feeding a multitude with some loaves and a few loaves and fishes. He feeds this multitude of thousands of men, plus women and children, and Look what happens at the end of that. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Why? Because he filled their bellies. It's no different today. A politician comes along and promises you something from the treasury and he gets your vote. But this is different. This is kingship. They come to take him, to make him king. And Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He got out of there. He didn't let them do it. But now he seems to be doing it on purpose. 
in this day that we call Palm Sunday, in this day of triumphal entry, Jesus is making a point to set this up and to accomplish it. Boy, this is powerful stuff because he is fulfilling prophecy on purpose. And all these things, Jesus is establishing a messianic profile. Messianic means it's about the Messiah, which in Greek is Christ. And it's not his last name, it's a title. We recognize him to be the Messiah, the Christ sent by God, the Christ spoken of by the Holy Scriptures, that indeed the people in Jerusalem, the people, the Jews in, in all their lands and, and all around the world, they were expecting a Messiah to come. Now they mostly had wrong why he was coming and how this coming would take place. But nevertheless, there were certain things they understood to be true about him. One of the things they understood was that Zechariah passage spoke of him and many other passages spoke of him. Let's look at the reaction of the crowd. That really gives us a clue as to what they were thinking and what they understood. After all, he marched in among them and not among us. So how they understand this is very helpful to us. Let's take a look at uh, verse 9 here. In verse 9, we have accounted that they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Well, Hosanna, it means save us. And we find that in Psalm 118. So they are saying to this one who's coming in, save us, be our salvation. Very profound that they're saying it. And then they're declaring him the son of David. And that reminds us of 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David receives from God what we call to this day the Davidic covenant, a promise of God that a future descendant of David's would reign upon the throne at Jerusalem forever. And that idea is developed through the Psalms and developed through the prophets, what this coming son of David would be like, and that he was this Messiah that would reign over all the earth. And they saw it as fulfillment to that. So this crowd is saying, you're this son of David that's promised. You're this Messiah. Save us and finding in him salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is found in Psalm 118, 26. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are, Jesus here, by doing these things, by accepting this worship from the crowd, by accepting their Hosanna, which we find in verse 25 here. It says, save us. We pray, O Lord, that's Hosanna, save us. And by accepting these things and by coming in in this way, he is proclaiming publicly and purposefully that he is king, that he is this Messiah figure that's been prophesied about. And nobody truly understands then how this is to unfold until after the resurrection. Because as things fall apart late in the week and Jesus is betrayed and handed over and tried and eventually crucified, there's no doubt they had to be looking on this, reflecting and thinking, boy, we're dead wrong about that guy. Well, what a failure he ended up being. And no wonder they shouted, 
crucify him because of the fact that he had been arrested, that he had been beaten. Well, that couldn't be our Christ. He's supposed to save us. And what they had in mind for save us was get these Romans out of here, get us back to having Israel in charge in the land and, and keep us from the oppression of our enemies. Well, the ultimate oppression of mankind is sin, and that's what Jesus came to deal with, and that's why he declares victory this day, because he's going to the cross. But more about that later. The response of the people is so key here to understanding this. Jesus is making a, a statement, and it is being received. And how did the people respond? They shouted and sang, as we saw, and we take a look at what they were saying. And they were expressing this longing, this expectation for salvation in the near term, overthrowing Rome, but in the long term, this long-standing peace among all the nations, an end of war, and an end of these false religions that lead people astray, and the beginning of an era of true faith and true religion in the Lord Yahweh, the Lord of the covenant, that people would come from all over and find the truth. See, they were suffering under instability ever since the exile, since they returned to the land more than 500 years before this. Uh, they have had periods of independence. They've mostly had oppression by Persia and then Greece and two different factions under Greece and then under Rome. And so they've had all this trampling of Jerusalem back and forth. They've never had a king sit on the throne in the line of David since before the exile. But God was not idle during that time. During that time after their return from exile, and until the time that Jesus came, God had the, the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek, the common tongue of the empire, and spread throughout the known world at the time. And it spread through the synagogue system, which was developed under exile, because all these people found themselves without a temple, with Jerusalem having been destroyed, most of them scattered out of the land at that time. Wherever they went, they took the faith with them, and they began the synagogue system, where they would have a building, they would meet there on the Sabbath, they would read from their holy scriptures and expound on those things, and this was part of developing a Jewish community everywhere they went. And as a result, some people began to believe in this God of the Jews. Now, they had their own gods and everything, but some of them heard about their holy scriptures and looked at their way of life and said, you know, yeah, I think that's right. I'm going to follow that. And some became God-fearers, which were people that followed the the king of the Jews, so to speak, that is Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And they uh, believed in those things. Some became outright proselytes and, and joined up with Judaism according to their law by being circumcised and going through the rituals and joining in their practices. And those have come together for a holiday in Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. That was not a holiday for them at that time. But it was the beginning of the Holy Week when these people were gathering together to eventually celebrate the Passover together. And this Passover feast at the end of the week was one of their high holy holidays of the year. They would come from all over to Jerusalem to be able to celebrate it. And so we have all these people in town, all these people bearing witness. And in addition to this, 
in John, John accounts this great fact here is the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign and is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. There were many, many witnesses to the raising of Lazarus from the dead accounted in John chapter 11. And those people went out and said, hey, look what this guy Jesus did. He raised someone from the dead. He could really be the real deal. He's He's a great prophet or maybe more. And why don't we follow him and see what happens? And so all this gets stirred up and, and it stirs up the crowd and it brings a larger crowd along to see and to follow Jesus into the city to see what he might do. And so this was profound. The crowd shouted and sang concerning these things. And the Jewish leaders, they protested this. Now, Matthew doesn't spend much time on this, but Luke and John both do. And if we have any doubt about what Jesus was saying that day, the Jewish leaders clear it up for us. In Luke, here's what they say. In Luke, uh, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, all these people are singing Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all these things, were they not true, would be borderline blasphemous to address these things to Jesus. And that was one problem they had with it, but the other was just very practical. These things are going to draw the attention of the Romans. They're not going to like you talking about having another king because our king is supposed to be Caesar. And so, you know, this would be politically unwise, even foolish to do such a thing, especially with the heightened awareness of Rome at this time. See, Rome's reaction to these things would be great concern. None of the gospel accounts tell us how Rome really reacted specifically to this event, but we do know that the Passover was traditionally a time of unrest. As more people gathered to the city of Jerusalem and they're, they're worshiping God and they're having this great holiday, well then their religion was completely tied up with this great nationalism and they would begin to have this nationalistic impulse. We need to overthrow the Romans. We need to get them out of here. We need to find a leader just like in Day of the Judges that'll raise up and, and deliver us from these crackpot Romans. And so they this was a time of unrest. The Romans would send extra uh, forces to Jerusalem just for the holidays. And this is why Pontius Pilate's even in town. He didn't live in Jerusalem, but he came there during the holidays because of the unrest that always inevitably came. This is reflected also in John 12, 19. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. And in the previous passage, they, they were talking about the fact that, you know, it would be expedient for us to do away with this Jesus for the sake of the nation. They were already plotting against him because of the political angle here. And so this is very emotional scene, a very tense scene, because this is political unrest. This is potential danger. And, you know, it's shown to us by this, that the whole city was stirred up, according to Matthew 21, 10. Interestingly, the whole city of Jerusalem got stirred up a previous time when Jesus came, and that was actually after Jesus had passed through there, and along came some magi that were looking for him. 
from the east, that is from a non-Roman province, they come along and they start asking the question in Matthew chapter 2, where is he who's born king of the Jews? Now they had lost track of the star they were following, so naturally they went to the capital. Oh, let's go to the capital, that's where the one born king would be. And they start asking around, well the whole city gets stirred up. The whole city is upset over this. Why? Because it's politically that anyone would suggest that, hey, here comes one uh, that's coming in the name of a king, and this could be a problem politically. So the whole city was stirred up, and indeed, this could cause a bumpy ride. Uh, but the biggest question we have to answer here, we, we looked at the fact, what was Jesus doing? He was clearly fulfilling this on purpose. The only time in his ministry, he's boldly saying publicly, yes, I'm the one. And he does it with more than words. He does it by stirring up this great crowd and, and coming in this great fanfare and re, re, fulfilling this well-known messianic scripture. And we also looked at how the people responded. But here's the most important thing I want you to take from this today. How will you respond? How will you respond to this? Will you shout and sing? Will you celebrate that Jesus has come, that Jesus has done these things? Will you lay down your cloak, so to speak, your branches, that is your life, lay down your life before him that he may use it as he pleases? Because that is what you do appropriately for a king. Will you welcome him into your life as he was welcomed by many into the city that day? Or are you trusting in the things of this world as your loyalty to other kings? Is your loyalty to a way of life that you're more interested in preserving than you are in giving it over to this king that comes, this Jesus? Will you cry out to him, Hosanna? Which means, save us. Because the Bible makes it clear there's no other name under heaven by which to be saved. And the Bible also makes it clear that all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They will not be put to shame. See, at the end of the matter, in, in Revelation chapter 20, we have the closing scene of humanity. And humanity, each and every human being, is to be judged. Paul says in the book of Romans, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And this judgment is done in this way. Books are brought out. And these books that are brought out in heaven, the first one that's mentioned is the book of deeds. In other words, what every human being has done. And we know from Jesus' own teaching that what we have done can only condemn us, that no one will be righteous according to the law because the law is more about whether you murder a person. It's about whether it's in your heart to hate somebody. And it's more about whether you commit adultery. It's about whether it's in your heart to lust after somebody. The, the, that faith, that true faith and exercise of religion is, is much more about uh, just praying than about having the praying with the right mindset and in the right way and tithing, not just the act, but to do it with the right mindset and the right attitude. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, takes all these things up a notch and basically makes it impossible. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He basically makes it impossible. Listen to how he accounts it in Matthew chapter 19 here. Take a look at this. See, they had encountered a, a wealthy 
young person. And Jesus says this, um, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this was surprising to the disciples because the disciples had the idea, and, and it wasn't just a disciple, it's kind of the common thought at the time, and it's a common thought to this day, that if you're rich, you're obviously righteous because God has seen fit to bless you with abundance because you must be obeying him. And so the implication was, well, the rich have got, got it made. They're clearly in the kingdom. They're clearly blessed and approved of God. And Jesus shockingly says to them, only with difficulty will a rich person in, enter the kingdom of heaven. And he takes it up a notch. He says, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when he says this, the disciples heard this. It says they were greatly astonished. They were saying, who then can be saved? Now pay attention how Jesus answers this. Because the disciples then, well, who in the world can be saved? Because if the rich can't be saved, can anyone be saved? And Jesus answers them, with man, this is impossible. Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. What? Salvation is impossible with man. But he goes on and he says, but with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. It's only, with, it's, it's only by God that anyone can be saved. For with man, Jesus says, it's impossible to be saved. By yourself, by your works, by your own ideas, by what you do, all by yourself, you cannot and will not be saved, period. Back to the scene in the book of Revelation, when the books are brought out, the book of the deeds will only condemn people, but praise to God, another book comes out, and this book is called the Lamb's Book of Life, and everyone who's written in that book enters the kingdom of heaven. Well, how do I enter that book? Well, that book is entered only by faith, all those who believe. So those who believe are the ones who will be saved. Those who believe what? Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came, that he died upon a cross in our place for our sins, and he was raised up again to life to show and declare that he indeed was the one to come and save us. You believe those things, and it's the kind of belief that results in work, it's the kind of belief that results in following him like he's a king. Because if you say, well, I believe all those things, but you don't follow Jesus like a king, you have no reason to believe you have the right kind of faith. See, James tells his readers in his letter, look, even the demons believe, but they shudder. See, they'll not be saved by their belief. No, a saving belief has with it the works of those, those who follow Jesus like he's a king like he deserves to be followed. So that's my question to you. How will you respond? Will you shout and sing? In other words, will you follow the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved? Do you believe? See, Jesus boldly proclaimed his identity almost 2,000 years ago now, and many, many millions have believed and followed. He's left an indelible mark on the world. We number our years by him. Will you shout and sing or will you protest? Remember the leaders protested. They said, you got to stop these disciples. This Jesus is going to threaten everything we know. 
this was their concern that they had expressed earlier was that he's he's going to stir up the Romans. The Romans are going to take away our positions. They're going to take away our lifestyle. They're going to take away our temple and everything. And in fact, guess what? They do. Because if we trust in anything other than Jesus Christ, those things are fading away. Those things will eventually be gone. 38 years later, their temple was destroyed by Rome. Those who had trusted in Rome more than they trusted in Jesus perished along with it. Many of them. And their whole way of life was gone. Well, many people have objections and protests to this day. Some say Jesus didn't claim any divinity. He didn't claim to be Messiah. He didn't claim to be a king. He was just a good prophet. He was just a good teacher. You don't have that option. Look at the scripture we read today in the parallel accounts in the other gospels. Jesus didn't give you the option to say, well, maybe he was just a good fellow. Because the way he publicly and, and boldly proclaims this, he's, he's got to be a liar, as C.S. Lewis says, a liar or a lunatic or something worse. He doesn't give you the option, no middle ground. He is either is the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Messiah that was promised to come, or he is nothing. And there's no middle ground. So my challenge to you is how you respond. Will you shout and sing? I want you to know the cost. This is the free gift of eternal life that actually ends up costing you in your life because things are never the same afterwards. He takes our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. He takes our, our old desires, our sinful desires that are harmful to ourselves, harmful to other people, and he changes those into a desire to serve him and to love him. And he defines all our service according to love, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Doesn't that sound like the kind of world where the swords can be beaten into plowshares and the spears and the pruning hooks. That's what he offers, this peace and eternal life, an eternal life that begins now, not upon his return. It's fulfilled completely upon his return, but it begins right now. And right now I encourage you to consider this one who boldly entered into the city publicly and plainly proclaiming to be this Messiah. And I want you to trust in him for salvation. Because only there, only there can you understand. Can you know and can you see what is true? Behold your king. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end according to the scriptures. He is not only the sovereign creator, but he is one who holds all things together. He is the one for whom all things were made. This is one who is worthy of worship and he does not disappoint. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this day and we thank you, Lord, for this account. We pray, Lord, that we may be good stewards of it. I pray that all who hear will believe. And Lord, I pray that you would just minister mightily to each and every hearer, that they will have the faith to respond in an appropriate way. And I pray, Lord, that those who are already written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that you will use the scripture to encourage them to embolden them, to have them to sing, as it were, publicly, Hosanna. Lord, I pray that you'll use this time and this message to bring forth your kingdom into more and more hearts so that as you fill the earth with your people, 
you will begin to fulfill all the purposes that you have for them. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I hope that's, this has been helpful to you. And I invite you to interact with us. Uh, you can uh, you can meet us. I've got some other questions there. You can contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. And you can find out more about us at whitesrun.org. And I encourage you to consider these things, to search the scriptures, to see if what I'm saying is true. And I invite you to interact with us. We'll take uh, criticisms, we'll take questions, we'll take whatever it is, and uh, contact us, and I will answer those things personally. So, have a blessed Easter celebration if you're listening to this at this time of year. And uh, consider the one who is indeed king, who proclaimed himself to be such. So, God bless you. May you be found well.